Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello to everybody out there and welcome to another edition of Razor Wire. Today we are going to be talking about our favourite subject in the information security world, penetration testing. How often should you do it? Should it be a snapshot in time? There's a big trend now towards continuous pen testing. I've been dealing with pen testing since my career began. I know John has pretty much. Megan... Uh, it's been a mainstay of information security now for so many years. It's it's kind of kind of hard to pinpoint when it all started, really. But yeah, that's what we're talking about today. I am joined by the wonderful Jonathan Kerr and the fantastic Megan Brown as well. Do you guys want to quickly introduce yourself very briefly, John? Go on. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on the uh, show, James. It's a pleasure to be uh, here. My name's Jonathan Kerr. I've been in the information security industry now for about 30 years. I work for my place like Gartner. I currently write for Dark Reading, and I'm on their editorial panel. And I'm also an advisor at Lionfish Tech Advisors. And those are sort of the things I do right now to keep my day going. Fantastic. Megan, do you want to make an intro? Yes, happy to. Thanks for having me again. We're repeat offenders. I like this, John. We're here together again. And uh, Megan Brown, I'm our head of our international business for a company called Logigate. When it comes to cybersecurity and risk management, we're on the technology side. So we provide a process technology to help digitize workflows and processes that support the cybersecurity efforts. So what do you do after the pen test results are shared? So we'll talk some about that today. Um, James and I have a, a passion. James can also be found on our podcast, GRC and Me, which is all about GRC thought leadership and content as well. Really talk morning about risk and compliance as well as security. But um, but it's so great to be here today and excited for the conversation. Thanks, James. Fantastic. And it's great to get a, a, get a view from yourself, Megan, because one of the things I've found quite often, you know, a lot of technology tends to kind of get birthed in the States or now seemingly Israel. Uh, and then it kind of migrates over, to, you know, to the middle here where we are in the UK. So it's quite interesting to get a view of where things are going over sort of stateside. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to sort of pen testing, there's a, it's been a bit of a journey with pen testing for a long, long time. It was that snapshot in time, which is kind of pretty much the name of this particular podcast where an organization would, they would operate for a little while or they'd build something, they'd have it penetration tested. And then quite often they would wait and either have it done annually or sometimes biannually. Every now and then you come across an organization that did it maybe quarterly. But I think, you know, with everything going on in the world, everything seems to be changing. I saw a poll on LinkedIn, actually, that was done and completed actually this morning. Something about, yeah, here we go. How often should a penetration test be performed? This was a, a poll from InfoSec people, admittedly. And 49% of the respondents, and there was quite a few respondents to this, reckoned we should do it every quarter. 21% said every six months. Uh, Another 21% said annually. And 9% said other. I'm not sure what they meant by other. Maybe... (laughs) I have an idea on that. Um, I think uh, probably um, 
yeah, Megan, tell me where I go wrong on this, because I think actually this feeds very well into what you were saying your area of expertise is. Those answers are driven by people whose security work is compliance driven. Mm. Um, so there are a number of standards, um, you know, PCIDs, DSS being one we've all heard of, that mandate a periodic pen test. And the two issues I have with that is, first of all, as you point, it's a snapshot at a point in time. It's also relying on the expertise and capability of the individual pen tester. And there are, you know, there's plenty of evidence and anecdotes out there to suggest that uh, uh, all pen testers are not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I, I shall be polite. I can be ruder if you wish. <laughs> um, but the other side of it is, and here's to the point of the other, I have a strong belief that pen testing alone, whether you do it every month, every week, every quarter, whatever periodicity you decide, it is not enough. It does not give you, first of all, the range of expertise and exposure to attacks that is out there in uh, terms. And the second thing is, is that security testing ultimately is a function, and everyone's going to hate me for saying this, so you know, brace yourselves. It's a function of quality. Mm. Penetration testing is a measurement of engineering quality, whether it be infrastructure engineering, software engineering, or you know, configuration engineering, whatever. It is a measure of how good a solution was engineered. And so I suspect that other is actually people saying, hey, why are we not doing security testing as part of our development cycle, mm-hmm. when a dev cuts some code and they upload it to the repository, why is it not being run through a security testing regime? Why are unit tests not including not only functional requirements that must be met for a code module, but security tests that should be met? Mm-hmm. This, I think, feeds into Megan's expertise, which, as she says, she takes the results of these pen testings. And to your point, Megan, this is where I'm going to let you talk, I see many penetration tests where either the scope is written in such a way that it is an unrealistic test. So it's like, please don't test that stuff over there because we know it's insecure. Well, that's not what an attacker will do. But the <laughs> second thing is they do the penetration test or, for that matter, vulnerability scan. And the results are not acted upon. Mm. And I was very intrigued when Megan said, hey, we do something about that. We make sure these things are turned into actionable plans. So please. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what we found. We were just working with customers and we'd say, okay, you've got got technology in your stack to help you with these processes, right? Maybe you have the different products that you have in your suite, or you have consultants come on and they walk through and help you identify your vulnerabilities and and help you walk through the results of the pen test. Um, But so who cares? What are you doing? How are you prioritizing? How are you um, driving accountability to those results of that? And how are you treating them in order to close those gaps to prevent any attacks? And I love what you mentioned. I know that might sound polarizing about the, it's a reflection of the quality of the work really that's been done, but it's it's absolutely, I think that's spot on. You know, if you can get to a place, true proactive place of continuous process identification of vulnerabilities or, or opportunities for improvement, right, within your program when you're building it, 
wow, you can analyze and prioritize and treat those quickly, make decisions, engineering decisions and updates so, so quickly so that you have an understanding of where you are and you have an understanding of what's going to be the effect of the organization and what are the treatment plans we need to do. And then oftentimes, you know, for us and our work with our customers, it's about, okay, great. Now who's owning that? Who's accountable to this? Who's accountable to the continuous process and identification of these? And how do you just, you know, get clarity into that? So ultimately it's not this, we call it like summer camp experience, right? Like once a quarter, it's a summer camp experience. You do the results, you have the findings. Now, you know, now you ha- you send them out to folks to work on and then you kind of have to repeat that work again, right? How do you just keep it a part of the bloodstream so that you're always secure? That's a lot of the work we do. How do you take it from that that snapshot in time and just make it a fluid motion, that engineering effort or fluid motion of the product development so that you can move faster ultimately when you close those gaps. I really like actually, John, I must admit, I'll echo, you know, what Megan was saying, the, the, the fact that it's a, a show of the quality of the engineering of, of, of whatever it is you're, you're, you're looking at or building or whatever. Pen testers, pen testers get terribly upset about that, especially the ones who like to believe they're particularly cool because they do pen testing. Like, no, you're quality engineers, you know. Oh, but I can't wear my black leather overcoat if I'm one of those. <laughs> but this is <laughs> this is the awkward thing. I mean, you know, when you pen test customers and they've got a really well engineered environment or a really well built environment, if it's a web app or a mobile app or whatever, and you come up with very few results they almost get a bit disappointed and start questioning the validity of the test. It's like they're expecting there to be CVSS 8s and 9s and all the rest of it just kind of sitting there. Again, on the flip side of that, you see quite often see people who you pen test and then you come back, say, six months later and they get the same pen test again. You're seeing the same, same results turning up and it's like, guys, have you, have you, have you actually done anything? <laughs> you know, you don't want to say that sometimes, but... It's like, <laughs> both, those, both those are, as you say, um, faulty and erroneous results. There's a mistake there in the expectation. The pen test, as you say, which when you come back for a repeat or a recurring test mm-hmm. and there's no measurable change, that is itself a finding, actually. Mm-hmm. As, and as Megan was saying, that's an indication that they either lack the will or the capability to secure their environment. Mm-hmm. And the other result is, well, we were expecting lots of more serious findings. Well, why were you expecting that? Why? What, what led you to believe that is the case? Right. What flaws do you believe that weren't covered by the system? And if that is the case, why were you leaving it to a pen test to expose these? Exactly. If there are serious and systemic flaws, you know, why are you expecting a pen tester to kind of go in blind and surprise you? Exactly. I love that. And we've got a phrase in the U.S. Well, I don't know if it's in the U.S., but you kind of think about like, if you know where the bodies are, if you know where the bones are, like, why don't you raise it? It'll help you be stronger. It'll help you have a more meaningful results of the pen test. And then you can know where your gaps are and address them. What's the point? You're just going to find them eventually or there might be an issue. So why don't you stay ahead of it proactively? And James, going back to your question a little bit about like, what am I seeing in the US too? One thing I'm seeing in the tech community is I'm seeing really an interesting emergence of small startups forming in the US with this concept of this like continuous monitoring. And so they're coming out as these SaaS platforms to say, hey, it's like an always on offering will help put like almost like a layer of AI, a layer of technology support to lean teams to have this continuous 
monitoring of systems so that, you know, take the pressure off individuals who are doing individual sample tests and things like that and just have an always on. So we're starting to see more and more of that in the U.S. and globally, but there's a lot of small startup companies that are just basically like leveraging API connections to con- to organizations' current tech stack to just make sure that they're always kind of continuously testing. So that's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm interested to keep my eyes on that. I don't know if you guys have heard of that or seen this too in the UK market. There's an interesting company actually. Um, again, I'll uh, run by a, a former colleague of mine called Push Security. And Adam is doing uh, tremendously well with Push. And his, his particular kind of aha moment, and I really enjoyed talking to him about it, was the, the realization it's not necessarily about software flaws per se. And this is why I mentioned configuration engineering. If we think about our cloud stacks, we tend to have lots of things hooked together. And um, so, for example, me, just me and my little consulting offering, I have things that are hooked together. I've got my calendar hooked to my Zoom service. Uh, I've got an automated link so people can book time with me. And all of this, of course, controlled by all requests. So it all kind of boils back to authentication through my Google account. Mm-hmm. Well, if you multiply that and you extrapolate that to you know a larger organization, how much tech and how much vulnerable stuff is sitting there, which is nothing to do with code they've engineered, but is, you know, pulling in or, as you say, calling APIs from some totally unaudited, unknown third-party service, but nevertheless is actually providing something that's very important to the sales team or the marketing team or the finance team. And, of course, this is where you end up with then people are then surprised when they find out that they've exposed data in a cloud bucket. They didn't even know it was some third-party service that they were only peripherally aware of. Mm-hmm. I did an article for for Dark Reading, which has uh, not been published, so I'm plugging myself here. Um, we're hoping to publish it simultaneously on Black Hat and on Dark Reading because it was actually looking at the Black Hat innovation entries. And there's some really fascinating companies in the startup world who are doing some really exciting things. They say using advanced analytics, using AI, and looking and probing and giving CISOs this insight that they never had before. But as you say, concomitant with that is you need to have, it's not, there's no point in just, you know, giving them insight and scaring the life out of them. Exactly. We need to say to the CISO, look, you now have this insight and then she can then take that and turn that into an actionable remedial plan. You know, I always think of the the broad scope of that I look at, you know, from from governance and compliance, but also cybersecurity. Like there's nothing worse than exposing vulnerabilities or exposing aspects of the business and then not like being negligent, not to close those gaps, right? So not actually taking the steps to close it. So I think sometimes folks, to your point, Jonathan, about like, We'll catch it on the next pen test or we'll, or we'll see if they find it kind of thing. Because there is, there is that fact that you'll have all of these findings. You'll have all of these issues that you now need to address. Otherwise you got you, you'll be negligent, right? So, and that goes with either regulatory obligations and things like that, that once you identify that it impacts the business, you, you've got to do something about it. And I think a lot of folks are concerned about that because they don't have the resources. They don't have the bandwidth behind on their project load. It's just another thing to do, but it is critical. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's quite interesting, actually. I mean, <laughs> a bit of a self-plug here. I mean, we actually have a new continuous pen testing service going live this month. 
because we're getting asked quite a bit by customers to, to provide kind of continuous validation of vulnerabilities they're experiencing, quite often in web apps, actually. And what does, what does, I mean, do they mean, when they mean continuous, do they mean minute by minute? Sometimes they, they, this is why we're having to do a tier structure because there are organizations who've asked us to do kind of like once or twice a day. You know, so they're, they're quite dynamic. They're quite agile in their code releases and they're, they're releasing a lot of code on a frequent basis. So they don't want it kind of done on a permanent, constant rolling basis because that's just going to be too much for them. But what they do want to do is at least once or twice a day, maybe once in the morning, once, once in the evening when things have calmed down a little bit, depending upon where they are in the world, they want to have their vulnerabilities checked and then checked by a pen tester. So it's almost like a blending really of vulnerability scanning tools coupled with pen testers. And it depends really on what, what, what they're asking for. We are seeing it. There's quite a significant financial company that's asked, asked us to, to do it for a, quite a few apps, actually, um, hence why we built it. It's quite a challenge there. I suppose, first of all, there's, um, you know, the, the traditional pen test, I think, you know, takes somewhere between three and seven days. Yeah. You know, again, I, I appreciate that's a very r- rough rule of thumb. Um, but if you're then doing these tests um, once or twice a day, is there not an issue with making sure testers have got enough time to do the test? Uh, or are you building a lot of automation into that? There's some automation built in. So basically, it, it, in many respects, when, when pen testers, obviously, we all know how pen testing works. You know, you do a certain amount of fingerprinting, you use certain tools available in things like Burp Suite and what have you to do your, your port checking and, and do your kind of reconnaissance. Um, a significant amount of, of the uh, initial work is quite, quite heavy because you're, when you get a new app, you've got a, you've, you've pretty much got a pen test it completely from scratch. Build up that vulnerability list. And then what you do is you build in the automation to check against those vulnerabilities that you can check for. Um, and then get the testers to, to, depending upon what the customer wants, obviously, to test particular vulnerabilities, maybe above a CVSS rating, if they're experiencing sort of like eights and nines on a more regular basis and kind of maybe the fives on a weekly basis. It's, it's very customizable what we've built because we're still kind of trying to gauge really what customers want. Some just want basically a vulnerability scan. They just want somebody to check over the results and tell them what they mean. That's on the lower end of that tiering scale. Some want to have a continuous pen testing thing, but then they want to have a pen test either once a quarter or once every six months especially for things like PCI DSS, where you've got to have segmentation checks and what have you. And that's something that can all be done and achieved. Once you've built that baseline of vulnerabilities, then you can see as they resolve them. So in our dashboard, what you see is you see your vulnerabilities. We, we do the full thing at the, at the beginning. Keep testing against those vulnerabilities as you're fixing them, bringing up any new ones, obviously any zero days that come up, anything like that, and then validating those as well and adding them to the stack. And the, the cool thing is, is over time you can see how your risk mitigation is occurring against the vulnerabilities that you're finding. Whereas with the pen test, it's a snapshot in time. So you have it done. No one's going to take you to task on it unless it's some, for something like PCI DSS where you can't have a CVS, you know, CVS rating above a certain amount. Then you'll be taken to task on it. You've got to do the retests, obviously. But if you're not under that 
requirement, then you could just generally sit on it. I remember I had a, a government department who I was consulting for who uh, said, well, we've decided we don't want any penetration tests because it's going to make things too unstable. And my response was, well, with respect, you actually don't get that choice. I know. You get to choose whether the pen testers are under your instruction or not. Yeah. Your internet connected environment will be tested whether you like it or not. And like your customers and your partners will require it, you know, too. It's That's a thing. Cyber insurance has become a really big thing over in the States. I know that a lot of organizations are, are, are pretty much being required to have it now in order to get, uh, you know, some of the customers that they've got and work in certain areas. We're starting to get asked by some of the insurance companies like, I won't mention quite who they are, but you can imagine who they are, the big ones. Yes. Whether or not they can onboard customers onto that platform to give them assurance that the organization, at least on their perimeter and the web apps, and sometimes internally, we're still working on the internal bit, a certain level of assurance so they can keep the premiums at a reasonable level and that there's not going to be a legal issue in the event of a problem. Is that something that you're seeing over there? It's exactly the case. And honestly, we're starting to see CISOs have conversations about what's the impact of not investing in some of these strategies or initiatives to better secure the organization, the impact on things like the cyber risk limit, the claims, the issues that they can have from a legal and compliance side. So we are starting to see that dialogue saying, hey, we can get better rates. We can get better coverage if we do X, Y, Z. So let's do it, A, for the betterment of the the business and our customers, but also because we can get really strong coverage, we can get support. And I'm also seeing the customer community just getting wiser and saying, hey, yes, we want to see, you know, old old days was just, let me see your SAC too, right? Let me see your SAC too, or um, maybe ISO uh, if you're in global entities, but... Can I see your pen test? Yeah, now it's let me see your pen test. And now, it, now let me see your pen test retest results. Now let's drill mm. into those lows, drill into those highs. Like, where are you? So now it's this next level of scrutiny, even from a customer community and and rightfully so, you know, people want to make sure that their third party, fourth parties are doing the right thing. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting moment in time. I have a question. I'm curious to something yeah. and something I something I've looked at this whole concept of bug bounties. Do they form part of a pen testing strategy? Mm. Are they a useful adjunct? Are they something that should be entirely separate? Is it a marketing thing, as you say, in order so that, you know, customers can feel some warmth because, hey, don't worry, you've got a great bug bounty program, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, oh, that's, a, that's a loaded one because, I mean, yes to a lot of that. Like, yes to, like, customers just feel better when you've got a documented bug bounty program. I mean, I'm seeing even customers coming to us to say, I mean, we they haven't even talked to us yet, and they just want to know, like, what are all of these what are you doing to secure the environment of your customers and how, how confident can we see? And, you know, things like bug bounty was not a request of us five, 10, you know, six years ago. It was a request from those that were keenly aware, like CrowdStrikes and others of the world that serve that space. They said, let's see your own bug bounty program. But it is, it is something that I know for us, it just gives our customers confidence that, hey, we've got this documented, we have a process in place. But I'll pass to James to understand, like, how do you see that fitting in within the, the work you do with pen testing? And uh, and do you feel like it is a little bit of a marketing 
you know, it's a little marketing play or yeah, get, I'd love to get your your yeah, I'm of, I'm of two minds when it comes to bug bountying. I have very mixed feelings towards it because I've spoken to a lot of organizations. In Creating Razor's Edge, we did go out, we spoke to a lot of different organizations because we're looking for a, an option for, for a bug bounty aspect of you know, that we can partner up with. We're not looking to do it ourselves. We want to get a really good quality. I think we found one as well. But I think one of the things that concerns me about the bug bounty programs is is... Very much, you don't know who's testing you. You, you, you know, these, these guys are checked like once, uh, when they join the tech, you know, whenever we've quizzed people and do you do regular yearly checks on your, on your, on your bug bounty groups? Cause I mean, it's not a free for all in most of those. Uh, there are a few that are pretty open and you get a lot of, you get a lot of people from certain parts of the world where you tend to get a lot of the, the 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 malicious groups that you're you're seeing at the moment, and you get a lot of people who quiz. You know, do we really want those types of 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 individuals from that neck of the woods testing us? I see a lot of people asking that. Can you validate where the testers are? You know, we only want bug bounty people from Europe. We only want them from the US. Uh, we don't want them from certain parts of of uh, Asia, for instance. Um, how do we validate that that you know that they're all above board and that they're not going to find a, a bug, and then realise they could get paid more on the dark web for selling that bug off there rather than selling it to back to the 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 organisation running the bug bounty system? My view is that a bug bounty program is especially useful if you are trying to instil public confidence in your product. So, for example, if you are a payment service provider, if you are a large online retailer, if you have a substantial B2C or B2B2C uh, type mm. offering, then I think it's valuable. I think that if you are, if your clientele is especially security conscious, and Megan, you mentioned, you know, a couple of vendors there who would certainly fit that, that would make sense again to say, well, if I have a clientele who is sensitized to this, then it would be a useful um, piece. Do I think that bug bounty will replace traditional pen testing? No, because the traditional pen test, as I, I'm going back to what I said at the beginning of the call, it's a measure of quality. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you want in a quality program is a structured method of assessing quality. Um, I think, however, it's a useful augment. Yeah. And as you say, to say that, you know, if something was found, then um, it acts as a useful um, channel for uh, external third parties. Say, hey, I found something. And as you say, um, then there is a, and I think that, there, as you say, there's a long conversation to be had, probably not on this podcast, uh, probably one of your others you've got planned, about what do you do about, you know, the uh, bugs on the dark web? That's a different question again. Um, the only thing I would say, folks, is for those of you listening who are thinking about submitting bugs on the dark web, once you've done it, you uh, can't easily undo it. So think carefully. Um, and I'll leave that one there. It's not an easy bell to unring. But I think that the way I would see a bug bounty program is as an augment to a well-structured penetration testing program that does most of what you want. 
that gives you that timely measurement of vulnerabilities, that timely assessment of software system and implementation quality. And then as an augment, as you say, if per chance some third party finds a bug that your team did not, that's okay. It can be fed into then your existing vulnerability management program and your pen testing team can say, okay, we've now got this. We will now monitor it and make sure that it is resolved. So it's, uh, um, so as I say, I see them as, comp- my view is I see them as complementary. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with you. And Megan, give us a, a wrap up for yourself before me and John continue the battle against bug bountying, pen testing and what we're seeing. Yeah, no, I think it's fan. It's a really interesting discussion. And it's interesting to keep an eye on the pulse where the market's going. And, you know, for us, it's all about that supporting you life after that snapshot in time. How do you make sure it's not that snapshot in time? How do you, you know, action, close the gaps and secure your organization, whether it's during the co-development phase or whether it's just in a more consistent manner so that you can provide great customer confidence and great internal confidence to the organization. So yeah, fantastic, interesting concept. I'll let you two continue the dialogue, but thanks for having me. No problems, Megan. You look after yourself. Will do. See you soon. Bye all. The thing I got from Megan, I I learned a lot from that was pen tests on their own don't do anything. If you don't have a way of tracking the issues, resolving the issues, even if you, you know, in this, and again, in the same way as we now have software defect systems like, you know, track it and so on. Um, if you don't have a way of measuring and resolving, even if it's a case of saying, you know, won't fix this or will be fixed in the next release or whatever it is, um, uh, you still need to be able to track and action the findings. And I think that was a really useful input from Megan. But Jim, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to turn the table on you since you've, since you've got Razor's Edge. I love the name. How do you attract, retain, and develop the high talent, the you know, the fairly scarce talent you need in order to effectively operate Razor's Edge? Oh, you have hit me with a question that I think I, you know, I've been agonizing over for quite a while. And it, a lot of it comes back to a number of things we've discussed on this channel before, and you and I have discussed quite a few times, both in these kinds of things and privately as well. You know, there are so few good quality information security professionals in this game at the moment. Lots of up and coming ones. Don't get me wrong. Lots of very, very good up and coming people. They need mentorship. They need guidance. That's why I do the master classes every other week. And, and seemingly they've, they've become quite popular with veterans. I'm getting a lot of army leavers, navy leavers, air force leavers who want to get into this game. And the good thing is they're coming with a certain set of skills. We did a video with with a, uh, an organization called Tech Vets recently where they support those people coming out of of the forces. And they already come with the discipline. They already come with those soft skills that you and I have discussed and it's just just for you know for everybody out there John was one of my most significant mentors in my career who taught me a lot of the soft skills that you know I still use today. I teach to, to people I mentor today. So you've had a massive impact on my life, John, and I'm passing that down the line, you know, as much as I can. The, the problem comes is when, you, when you're looking for pen testers who are like 
five to 10 years kind of experience. They, they really know what they're doing. They're starting to really get into their career. And you get organizations luring them away with ridiculous amounts of money because they're so scarce. Obviously, scarcity drives up, up the price. Can I can imagine you're up against you know, banks and insurance companies yeah. and uh, insurance companies that own banks who, you know, again, would say, well, we want this talent in-house. Yeah. So again, yeah. so the question comes, what do you do to say to people, look, you will, we'll, uh, you will have the most interesting work. You will have a chance to make your reputation in the industry. What do you do to attract people to raise a thought? Because I say, it's not, it's not all about the money. And arguably, no. and folks, again, I mean, this isn't a call-in show, but I'm sure James has got their comment sections. I'd Absolutely. be really interested, for those of you out there, do you get into pen testing for the money? Because I think that there are other reasons. I think that if you want, you know, if you want that, you probably want a career in the banking rather than going into uh, pen testing. You know what, John? I'm actually I, my my next masterclass is coming up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose that question to the to the people who attend. I've got like fifty or sixty people who attend each one, and then a number of people who watch the recordings afterwards. I'm going to pose that question because I'm interested to see what the response is on that one. And obviously, if you want to respond to this particular video when it goes live, then please feel free. I'm sure John will read them and I'll, I'll, I'll communicate with him as well. But I think it's a tough one because, you know, what we, we focus very much on the career journey and what you're going to learn throughout your career. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in getting a good, well-rounded individual as an infosec professional before you hyper-specialize in things like pen testing or, you know, consultancy or PCID assess QSAing or ISO 27001 or a blend or an amalgamation of, of those. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the message because the problem is, is I, I've spoken to people who've left Razorthorn over the years and a lot of them and I'm not, not lying here, a lot of them have actually kind of regretted it because where they've gone uh, they've ended up being very much pigeonholed. You know, they've gone to the big organizations that say, yes, come in, come and join us. You can, we'll pay you a fabulous amount of money. And they find themselves basically doing the same thing over and over and over again until they basically burn out or, or get so tired they, they end up leaving. I've always thought one of my big career mistakes, although probably uh, resulted in us two meeting, which otherwise you might not have done, but I always thought my big career mistakes is... Uh, Again, decades ago when I uh, got married uh, the first time round, I um, uh, left Sun Microsystems uh, as Reuters had dangled large amounts of money in front of me. And I have to say that, uh, yes, of the, I, you know, 30 years on now, um, I'm still regretting leaving Sun Microsystems. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I can, I mean, I can depends, certainly but... echo that, yeah. But but this is but this is the thing though. I mean, again, we we come from a, a very different time in that part of our career. These days, now, right now, a lot of people are very much focused on the money, and a lot of you know, there's a lot of hardship going on. There's you know, inflation is going crazy. People are, have experienced some some pretty hard times. Um, so the, I think the generation coming in, the young generation coming in at the moment, rather than some of the older ones who are changing career. A lot of them are chasing the money and, and retaining that kind of talent can be pretty tough. I mean, I, I, you know, I've recruited pen testers, I've accepted, and then it's literally t two or three days before their start date and they message through and say, sorry, I've been offered 25% on what you're offering. So I'll, I'll be joining them. And it's like, 
wow, okay, do, do we get a chance to talk about it or anything? You know, it's a bit of a cutthroat market out there. And it always will be. Um, yeah. We're in a specialist market. Uh, don't look at just the money. Look at what you you know where this will take you. And I guess the reason I was asking this is, I mean, do you encourage people to you know go to conferences? So the obvious one, and I casually dropped it earlier, is things like Black Hat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other ones. There are other ones as well. I mean, there's um, uh, the folks at Forty Four Con are uh, good friends of mine, and um, they have for many years now operated a really nice technical security conference. Mm. Um, they run it in the West End of London in a yeah, nice, little, uh, nice little conference center. And the people there all have this defining characteristic. They're all passionate about security. Yeah, And there are plenty of people there who are going there with jobs, but also a lot of people saying, look, it's worth us sending our entire team to something like 44Com if we can't afford the plane fares for everyone to go off to a black hat. I'd like to go to black hat before they go to black hat. But no, yeah, I, I, no, I, I agree with you. And I think it, it is something we're doing on a, on a small scale at the moment. You know, I'm, I'm quite big in bringing some of the, the especially these, these vets that are coming out the army who, who already come with a, a good, good layer of skill sets and some, especially some of the guys coming out signals or guys and gals rather. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use some of what we're doing to, to be a springboard for the, that next group of really hot testers coming up with the guidance from some of the high-end testers that we've got. But I think we have to be aware as employers that we're not getting, you know, instant pen tester just at, no. you know, just at seat. You are, you know, getting a, well, as we always do with employees, because we're getting a person with a set of skills and capabilities, but they're not going to be the ones we traditionally expect. But then it's not hard to teach people, as you say, you know, the, the methodology of a pen test. It's not hard to teach people the, how to do the tools. And you say, well, what about all the advanced reverse engineering stuff and so on? Well, again, I would argue, actually, that the tools are getting there. But again, this becomes a process. I mean, look at that um, that new tool. What's it called? Gistra? I can never pronounce it. The new reverse engineering tool released by Google, Project Zero. Oh. Um, um, so if you are, yeah. again, depending on what you're doing, if you're, you know, looking to move beyond, if you like, the be- you know pen testing 101, if you are looking into vulnerability research and development, which I think is a good again. It's it's a it's a, it's an interesting one because do you use it as a loss leader? Um, do you use it and say, well, actually, this is again an enticement for people to say, look, you know, we'll give you time that you can work on these things if this is a passion of yours and develop your skills. And so, there's so many things I think a you know an employer can do, and that's why I was curious about what do you do to make Razorthorn more exciting than. Um, as you say, getting stuck in a chicken coop in one of the big four. I have to remember that you and I, you and I come from a time period where InfoSec was a bit of a wild west. We didn't have tools. We didn't have anything other than our wit half the time. We didn't even have GRC tools that worked. You know, and and the world is becoming a very a very much more blended. Well, arguably, I say there are still many GRC tools that don't work. Well, yes. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I mean, obviously, Megan's going to be listening to this one, and she's got a great yeah, Megan product. Megan being the exception. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, not, not Megan. Yeah, not no, Megan. Right. But, um, 
part of the difficulty here is I'm seeing such a, such a change in the trend with, especially pen testing. You know, pen testing was that snapshot in time initially. That's how you and I knew it for years. Vulnerability scanning came along. That was kind of a, a part of this whole process where you could have your pen test on a yearly basis or our biannual or whatever, and you'd have your vulnerability scanning in the meantime that would tell you kind of roughly what was going on, and then the pen test would do all the difficult stuff. We've now got intelligence. You know, ISO 27001 has now got an intelligence components being added to it. I'm seeing probably something similar coming down from a PCI DSS perspective in, in new versions coming down the line. And, and it seems to be a trend that's occurring across a lot of different frameworks now. And now people are tying in intelligence and understanding what's going on in the dark web and emerging threats in with pen testing. So we're getting... I can see Razor's Edge specifically as we build it out, not only becoming a continuous pen testing thing, but also utilizing various different techniques, skills, and tools to find out what's going on in places that most people probably you know, don't tread. And to be honest, you shouldn't, unless you really know what you're doing. I mean, you know, you and I have gone treading down some of those routes, and I must admit, I'm not, I'm not keen on doing it that often. I think the difference is, and. Um I've actually had this conversation, uh, how do you measure the efficacy of threat intelligence? Mm. Uh, everybody says, oh, well, you know, we, we go on the dark web and we hang out in the bulletin boards. I think the difference, as James said, the Wild West was actually considerably less wild than it is now. Folks, yeah. that means, for those of you <laughs> it's who think quite boring. it's fun, <laughs> for those of you, and, you know, I'm going to utter a little cautionary tale for our folks out there listening and do respond in the comments. For those of you who are thinking about making your name by infiltrating criminal gangs on the dark web, it's a high-risk strategy because these are real criminals with real guns. Mm. These are not you know, disaffected teenagers having a laugh together. They are serious and organized with a monetary intent as the police call them. Do think about this carefully when you're getting involved in here. And of course, the other thing, this also impacts the threat intelligence. Because in the early days, and I remember talking to a, um, uh, a lovely threat researcher called Eva. And Eva said, it's very simple. I go hang out at the bar, I buy everyone a round of drinks, and I try and stop them telling me all the things they've been doing then people are happy to boast. They are happy to talk about their exploits and what they've done and the stuff. The world has changed. Nowadays, these serious and organized criminal gangs with a monetary intent keep themselves very much to themselves. They don't hang out on the public forums. And for that matter, and this is something I've uh, pointed out to the, the threat intel data theft companies, the so-called ID protection companies, they no longer say, hey, we've got this bunch of stuff and uh, we're offering it for sale. If they have real usable data, real usable identities, they will use them themselves yeah. within their group. And it is only when they've become stale that they get offered into the various bulletin boards. Now, one of the exceptions is, you know, things like Genesium, which is, uh, again, a story for another day, but this uh, rent profiles for your bot network is, again, an interesting development out there. The problem with threat intel, and the, this something I'm, I am still kind of concerned about, is how do we prove 
how effective it is. Because by its nature, they're probing into the dark places. And so how do we prove how effective they are? Again, we have no measure of seeing, you know, did you find any, did you, did, was it a case of happy days? There's no information out there that should concern us or it just hasn't come to light yet. No, I agree. You're absolutely right. You're never going to get into the really dark parts where you know, that's invite only places and, and not without significant vetting do you get in there. And you really don't want to hang out in there if you're not going to do kind of what they're doing. If you see what I mean, you know, I'm not advocating any, anybody uh, go and join one of these groups. Security has changed. It's changing so much. And I really enjoying watching the evolution of security in business, in both in private sectors and public sectors. We've never been so tool rich and, and we've never had so many tools we didn't know what to do with. And we really haven't kind of gotten our defense in depth down properly still. It's all evolving so rapidly because of certain things that happened a year or two ago. We haven't caught up yet. There's still not enough money necessarily being spent on security for a lot of organizations. A lot of them, it's still five pounds and a pickled egg kind of country. Some organizations do spend very well. But this is why it's important to do regu- you know, that, that whole regular testing piece. And this is why we created Razor's Edge, because so many people now are asking for just some kind of level of, of assurance of where they are at any one point and that they're, you know, they're dealing with their issues. I mean, it just goes to show, as Megan said, insurance companies are starting to utilize that kind of data. It's going crazy. The world is changing around us, John. What happened? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, well, well, I think it's going to, um, it is, as you say, the world is going to change and evolve. And um, we can either change, evolve or die, um, or at least retire. Well, which, we've got a whole machine uh, yeah, learning component, yeah. for instance, which is rapidly changing. Well, exactly. And that, yeah. I mean, the machine learning component has changed the world of fraud, um, which mm. has been heavily invested in uh, machine learning technologies now for decades. It's also, though, I think, um, now starting to come to cybersecurity. I was one of the people in my former job who coined the idea of user entity behavior analytics. I'm also the person who said this plane needs to be landed now because this is no longer a tool set that people go out and buy. It's a capability that's in everything. Mm. It's in, you know, EDR becomes EPP. Uh, Sims now have, you know, next gen Sims have, uh, uh, user entity and analytics baked in. Um, or if you're Splunk, you sell it as an extra add on, but still, um, <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> and the advent of machine learning, I've seen some really exciting startups, as Megan was saying, who are in the space of saying, well, actually, we can take control a little bit of the orchestration, automation, and remediation process. So we'll not only find a vulnerability out there, but we can carry out some intelligent remediation to mitigate the risk of that vulnerability, which is, you know, I think actually that's kind of cool. We are in a much better place, I think, than, than we were. I think it's evolving all the time. I think we still suffer from that skill shortage we were just discussing. Um, I think that's that's really the key issue that I see in this industry at the moment. And pen testing, consultancy, the lot. There's just not enough people with the right level of skill sets and the right level of years of experience. 
and I don't think there is going to be for a while. Um, so we've got all these tools and companies are still investing massively in tools, but a lot less in people to, to, to understand what the output is. It's great if you're a consultancy because we get more and more customers every minute, but we need more staff. But that's a discussion for another day, I think. Absolutely. I mean, where do you think we're going with this as final thoughts on the matter? I mean, I think there'll always be a place for the experienced, capable penetration tester. But increasingly, we're going to see that these scarce resources, which, as you said, are hard to recruit and you know, develop and you know, retain, uh, we're going to see these are increasingly augmented by intelligent tools. And you mm. say the you know the the world of AI, as Megan said, is definitely uh, catching up very fast on this one. I doubt whether we'll ever see the point where AIs are as flexible as a human, but um, you never know. I don't know. I see a time when we where we're almost partnered up. AIs are great for disseminating large amounts of data and giving you the information that you need for you to then deliberate and maybe focus in on things that you wouldn't normally be able to do. It takes us days, weeks sometimes to go through data sets to figure out what's going on, whereas they can do a lot of the heavy grunt work very early on. And I think that's maybe where pen testing is going to go. As you say, you'll have the human pen tester, but they will have their AI machine learning counterpart that will do port scanning and all the fingerprinting and figuring out what the environment looks like and then allows that pen test to focus in. I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly where it'll go, yeah. Especially when we start seeing things like ChatGPT being gamed as, as we have, which has been really interesting to watch people seeing, getting it through language to do things it shouldn't do. But again, that's a discussion for another time. John, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And your insight as per usual is absolutely fantastic. So thank you ever so much. Very welcome. Brilliant. And thank you all for out there for listening in on the podcast. Thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day. <laughs>